Cultivating Place is made possible in part by support from the American Horticultural Society, celebrating 100 years of trusted, high-quality gardening and horticultural information since 1922. Listeners of Cultivating Place can receive a $10 discount on the annual individual membership of $35 by visiting www.ahsgardening.org forward slash cp. For your annual membership to the American Horticultural Society, including their flagship publication, The American Gardener, for the special cultivating place rate of just $25 a year, head over to www.ahsgardening.org forward slash cp. This is Cultivating Place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. Professor Bonnie Clark is an anthropologist and archaeologist at the University of Denver. Her new book, Finding Solace in the Soil, Archaeology of Gardens and Gardeners at Amachi, traces six field seasons of her research and her immersion into the lives of Japanese Americans held at the Amachi prison camp on the high plains of Colorado from 1942 to 1945. Bonnie joins us today to share more about what it means to be a gardener and a human viewed through the lens of these stories. Bonnie, I am so pleased to be speaking with you today about your work. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. I am too. I'm a fan of the podcast and was thrilled that you were interested in my work. Well, I just think um, after having read the book, after having read quite a few things from you and attending one of your conferences about the work, it just has so many implications for uh, us as gardeners, for the value of gardens in our world, for the vessels that they are in holding so much important, um, not not just meaning, but information as well um, about what it is to be human, Bonnie, uh, that it just was kind of mind-blowing in a lot of ways for me. So before we get deep into this, tell us tell us a little bit about your, uh, you know, your your current, I don't know, I want to say mission statement for your research work, your professorial work, and, um, you know, and, and maybe how that comes out as well in this newest uh, publication, Finding Solace in the Soil. Well, as an anthropologist, I'm so interested in, in again, what it means to be human and especially when we're sort of in times when that humanity has been, is um, being challenged. And so the gardens at Amachi uh, really presented this amazing opportunity to really think about, you know, what, it, what, is, what is it, what is a garden? Why do we garden? Uh, and and what stories and do they hold and how do we release those through different um, pathways and as an archaeologist you know most people think of archaeology as something that happens for for the deep time past but archaeology is also a way to understand um, you know things that happened not very long ago and if you've ever 
worked in your own garden, you can sometimes see, you know, those traces of your past decisions, you know, where a, a garden, the edge of a garden bed might have been, or a planting hole that you started and didn't finish, and, um, or, you know, just even the decaying of composting matter. And I'm reading those same clues when I'm doing this kind of work. And so, to me, the study of gardens fits to the study of anthropology that it's about our connections, our connections to each other, our connections to nature, our connections to our heritage. So that it's a great place to be able to turn the anthropological lens. Take us back to like your own past where you were raised, who, who or what or what plants grew you into a person who would see gardens as an important uh, archaeological, anthropological lens, Bonnie? Well, I um, was very lucky to have grown up in a home where uh, gardening was a, just a really super important part of, you know, of our food ways, of our heritage, of our faith. And, um, and I learned, you know, from my father, and I always loved to garden and actually recently found a really funny picture of me, um, you know, just, I'm just filthy and I've, and I've got this big grin and there's just a bunch of carrots that I've harvested that are at, sort of <laughs> at my feet. And um, I, so I, you know, I didn't always love gardening, you know, all the tasks. I certainly didn't like weeding. I don't know that there's a whole lot of people who do, um, but I learned that, you know, those were all the parts that went into being able to have these beautiful vegetables um, that were part of your diet and even a place where, you know, you created that, that ecosystem. I was really interested in, you know, worms were like one of my cool things when I was a kid, I thought they were so fascinating <laughs> and I still do. Um, I, find, I, I find great joy when I turn over my compost in the spring. So, uh, so I, I, I grew up gardening and I also grew up hiking and being out in nature. And, um, and I really, like I didn't necessarily make those connections that those were two different forms of en or engagements with nature maybe until uh, later in my life. But um, I was so excited the first time as an adult that I had my own place that I could garden. And so I have been uh, a gardener, you know, since my twenties and um, have became even more sort of like my garden started very little and each year it kind of gets bigger and bigger. <laughs> and so when I found out about um, these gardens at Amachi, I just, it was sort of this natural fit for me of something that I knew made me feel better and made me connected. And so when I saw these, I, I sort of, I wanted to know how they were connected to those same processes for these people who had been, you know, uh, removed from their homes and struggling to find their place in the world. Were you born and raised in Colorado? So this is a familiar environment to you? Uh, no, I'm actually originally from uh, northern Utah. But I will okay. say that the, the sort of so the inner mountain west is my home mm -hmm. and um, for most mm -hmm. of my life and where I've done so much of my research. So kind of that that high desert environment yeah. Um, yeah. with the big skies is um, that that to me is home. Yeah. So you you grow up, you go to undergraduate. And is it in your undergraduate work that you decide to be an archaeologist, anthropologist? What pulled you to this work? 
uh, before even you use it to to look at gardens? Well, I kind of back to my sort of love of being out in nature and hiking, uh, you know, I was um, I was both an English and an anthropology major and uh, as an undergraduate at the University of Utah. And I was really lucky that there was a big um, pipeline project that was happening the same year that I graduated. So most of the archeology span that's done in the United States and worldwide is not done by research archeologists like me, but by people who are doing that work in anticipation of development projects that are going to impact our you know, shared um, heritage. And so we, you go in ahead of time and try to document things and try to reduce the impact that they have. So I basically walked the length of the state of Utah one summer. And wow. um, I wasn't sure that I wanted to be an archaeologist, but it was in the act of it that I fell in love with it. I was, I was out there in these, again, wide open spaces. I was finding the things that people had left or lost, you know, possibly thousands of years ago and trying to puzzle out what they meant and trying to connect with these people. And I just, I just fell in love with it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so take us to how you come to the University of Denver and when in that trajectory you first meet the the reality or the concept even of Amachi. Well, so I started at the University of Denver in 2003. I just, I was really lucky. I came straight out of my PhD program at Berkeley. So even though I'd done school there, my uh, dissertation research was doing landscape archaeology on a Hispanic site in southern Colorado and really sort of trying to understand placeways and you know how it is how and why people make places and so I, I had really I'd been looking at the gardens but also the relationship to sort of natural resources and to sort of think about the way that um, it's one of my favorite quotes from um, environmental historian William Cronin who says nature is an idea lived in places. And so to kind of look at the at people's places to get back to their concepts of nature. And so I, you know, I was just having, you know, kind of finishing up that work, working on the book that covered that. And I was starting, you know, kind of afresh in Colorado after having been gone for five years. Um, at least, you know, I had been back in the summer for research, but I was back full time. And I found out about a sort of reconnaissance level survey that had been done down at Amachi. And I was looking through all of the, their results. And the thing that struck me so much was the, the fact that there were all of these gardens. And here are people, again, who'd been singled out because of their ancestry, that they didn't seem you know, American enough and that they looked like the enemy. And then they go to this new place and they build traditional Japanese gardens, along with other types of things, of course, and not all of them are super traditional, um, which is part of the, the real interesting research. But I just, I was so struck by them. And I, and I really thought about how um, they would be such a, a rich place to understand everyday life, to understand strategy, to understand, you know, decency, uh, expertise, all of these things in these places. And being personally, again, being a gardener and knowing how tough it is to garden, 
on the mm. high plains that yeah that here are these people who are coming from you know primarily from the california from california and they're in this like place where the wind never stops blowing <laughs> and they are having to figure out how to do this and so i really was interested in how they were taking their horticultural expertise in this totally new place yeah this research on these gardens at Amachi really are perhaps incredible tools for thinking about how to care for and provide for people who are refugees or displaced for one reason or another. Like that really was a poignant um, statement to me when I read that. Um, so I think we better just move back a tiny, tiny bit and have you give listeners uh, a little bit of a history lesson on what we're even talking about when we say Amachi, so that everyone is kind of up to speed before we dive into the beginning of your research there in 2008. Sure. So as hopefully, you know, most of your readers have some awareness that, you know, during World War II, the United States incarcerated unjustly the vast majority of the Japanese Americans who lived in this country. So after the bombing of Pearl Harbor, what had been a kind of general anti-Asian sort of sentiment that even started with the Chinese Exclusion Act in the early 1800s, really kind of focused and flared on people of Japanese ancestry. Um, but because of existing anti-Asian racism, uh, those Japanese Americans who had immigrated to the United States were not able to become citizens. So they did not have a lot of voice in politics. Um, their children, of course, who had been born in the United States were citizens, but most of them were pretty young. And so after Pearl Harbor, uh, there's this sort of kind of a, a racialized hysteria about the fact that, that these Japanese are going to somehow assist the Japanese army, even though of course they have chosen to come to the United States or they've been born in the United States. And there was in fact some, like the Navy had done some intelligence that suggested that these folks were even more patriotic than many of their neighbors. <laughs> and yet there was so many pushes, calls by politicians and certain people in the army that like these, that it was just, it was too dangerous to have them be on the coast. And so they established this area along the, um, the Pacific Rim. So Washington, Oregon, California, and the lower half of uh, Southern half of Arizona were established as an exclusion zone. And then they declared that everybody who was Japanese American had to leave. Um, and then it was pretty clear that they didn't have places to go to. And so then they were actually rounded up and then put in these, primarily in these 10 large confinement camps that are throughout the United States, mostly in the West half of the US. And then they were removed there and kept under armed guard. Uh, they could come and go, but they needed to have a permit or a pass. And um, then they were there for many of them for the duration of the war although others at a certain point could, if they could get a work permit, and this was particularly for these folks who had a lot of skill in agriculture at a time of food shortage, uh, they were able to get you know, permanent work leaves 
to go um, often to work in farms and ranches, some of them in Colorado or, or, or in surrounding areas around these um, 10 camps. So probably the most famous one is Manzanar in California, but there were, there were 10, including the one that was here in uh, southeastern Colorado. But, you know, you, you, you're from Fort Collins and, and um, you know, most of the Colorado population lives, um, you know, right near the mountains. But this is the part of Colorado that's really pretty much Kansas. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's open, wide open plains. Yeah. Describe it for people so they get a, a sense of it. I mean, it is, it is beautiful in its own way, but it's, it's a very specific landscape. Yeah, it's it's wide open and pretty much the only trees that naturally grow are along waterways. So you get cottonwoods and um, a few other, you know, like wild plum and chokecherry that grow along waterways. But the rest of it is it's just it's scrub. It's it's yucca and um, cat and prickly pear cactus and little low um, grasses. And so, you know, there's a lot of cattle ranching out there. The camp is, is in the Arkansas River Valley and the Arkansas River Valley is an important place for irrigated agriculture and it has been for you know over a hundred years. This is Cultivating Place. Professor Bonnie J. Clark is an anthropologist and archaeologist at the University of Denver. Her new book, Finding Solace in the Soil, Archaeology of Gardens and Gardeners at Amachi, traces six field seasons of her research and immersion into the lives of Japanese Americans held at the Amachi prison camp on the high plains of Colorado in the 1940s. We'll be right back after a break. Stay with us. Cultivating Place is made possible in part by listeners like you and by generous support from the American Horticultural Society. Soon to celebrate its 100th anniversary next year, the AHS has been a trusted source of high-quality gardening and horticultural information since 1922. Today, the mission of the American Horticultural Society blends education, social responsibility, and environmental stewardship with the art and practice of horticulture. Members of AHS receive the award-winning magazine, The American Gardener, which is outstanding. Free admission and other discounts to more than 345 public gardens with the Reciprocal Admissions Program, plus discounts on books, seeds, programs, and more. Listeners of Cultivating Place can receive a $10 discount on the annual individual membership fee of $35 by visiting www.ahsgardening.org forward slash cp. For your annual membership to the American Horticultural Society for the special Cultivating Place rate of just $25 a year, head over to www.ahsgardening.org forward slash cp. I have not been a member for a hundred years, but for all the years I have been a member, I have trusted the American Horticultural Society. Join us. Hey, it's Jennifer. 
In a moment in time when hate crimes of all kinds, but notably those perpetrated against Asian Americans, is in the news regularly, I want to dedicate this conversation and episode with Bonnie Clark about the gardens at Amachi to all of the Asian and Asian American gardeners and plants people in the world who have generously shared of themselves and their horticultural gifts and histories, and who continue to enrich our gardens and our gardened world. We would be impoverished without you. I dedicate this as well to my garden friend, Christine, and to my second grade teacher, Miss Wayno, on Lookout Mountain, Colorado, and to the Kims, gracious neighbors and owners of Jelayo in Chico, California. You make this place sweeter. We're back now to our conversation with Bonnie Clark, anthropologist and archaeologist, studying the Japanese-American gardens and gardeners of Amachi on the high plains of Colorado, the smallest of the 10 prison camps around the U.S. that held Japanese-Americans during World War II. Amachi was active from 1942 to 1945. In its lifespan, a total of 10,000 people were held there, and at the time, it was the 10th largest city in the state of Colorado. As we come back, Bonnie describes more about the conditions of the camp and the people trying to make their lives and gardens there. Yeah, so, um, I mean, they're not all the way complete when people arrive, but even if the buildings are complete, the landscape is absolutely raw. And uh, because what happens is the the builders come in and they just, they bulldoze it. And then they put up, this is what are, what are basically modular housing. They call, It's called modified theater of war. And it's the thing that the army builds when they need to have like an instant settlement. And yeah. so and they're sort of like barracks yeah, in a way. They basically are barracks. I mean, they're, yeah. they're fit yeah. onto that plan, which makes them terribly ill-suited for whole families, which is what you've got here. And because it's like any little bit of the native vegetation or even topography has been kind of obliterated, that people show up and kids remember, they just, they get lost. It's like this sea of tar paper covered buildings that all look exactly alike. And so that, you know, personalizing that space becomes like an immediate concern. And partly just because it's just so institutional and and dehumanizing, but it's also, this is the high plains, which is just coming out of the dust bowl. And so that wind is just, it's just a a nightmare because it's, it's just gritty. It's just, it's picking up all of this very sandy soil and it's just blowing around everywhere. And there's some historic documents that I incorporated into the book about um, someone writing to the newspaper about how every time the wind blew, it just was like it grated on their soul (laughs) because you just knew that you were going to go outside and it was going to get in your eyes and in your hair and that it would sneak through these poorly constructed buildings. And, you know, just you woke up every morning and there was just sand everywhere. And 
you know, you go into, which I, I really would encourage anyone who's interested in this to, to get the book and, and read the book. You go into detail on why you are choosing to use some of the language you are using. People are very familiar with the term internment camp and relocation center and, you know, kind of euphemistic words uh, for a time in history which has really been quiet. Like, it, it's, a, it's a time that the people who were put into these places do not really want to talk about uh, that, you know, as a nation, I think we are ashamed of this period as we should be. And so we don't really want to talk about it. So there's all this kind of veiled uh, understanding of what these places were and when they happened and why they happened and how we talk about them. And and you get into this in some uh, really important and straightforward ways. Take us on the sort of pathway that leads you up to that first field research summer of 2008. So one of the things that I knew was going to be important was that as I was introduced to the site, and in part because of that first um, report that I read that really talked about the amazing kind of resources that were there, um, something that we as archaeologists call integrity, like there's physical integrity. Um, so the the foundations are still there. Many of the plantings were still there. Like the objects that people used are sort of broken and scattered across the su- surface of the site. And so, and in part because of that, and as you just noted, that this is a really important part of American history that we tend not to talk about. And so the combination of those two things led to the decision at the federal level that this would become a national historic landmark, which is um, a designation for the sites of the sort of highest import in the United States. And so um, it was it was just about to become a historic landmark. And it seemed like a really wonderful time to become involved because the more people that show up at any historic site, the more impact there's going to be. And so it was a good right. chance oh. to get in early on and to try to really establish, you know, what what is the data that's out here, um, but also to be able to, um, at a time where, you know, to, to bring in, because there were, you know, survivors from the camp who had been involved in that original archaeology um, survey who had uh, basically sponsored it. And so I reached back out to those groups and I said, would you like this work to continue? Would it be welcome for us to come? And especially for me as a professor to bring students and to have them learn and use this as a kind of, you know, a laboratory. Um, and, uh, and we got really positive um, feedback from the community that that would be welcome. And um, that, that we're, again, bringing and helping this history, um, bringing it to light. And um, so we were, I was just super lucky that as I was, uh, but I, I did get some money from my university to be able to do some consultations. So I went out to California, which is where most of the people from Amachi had lived before, so that I could, mm-hmm. so I could really talk to, to folks and, um you know, make sure that what we were doing was built on their understanding of their own history and um, some of their priorities. And and doing that was wonderful because not only like just to be able to hear people's stories and to give them, a, you know, just a, a sort of forum for that conversation, 
but also people had been holding on to things, you know, scrapbooks and of photographs and newspaper clippings and sometimes letters or diaries or objects from camp, artworks that had been made, you know, uh, vases that had been carved from right. the roots of yuccas, you know. And right. so I was able to sort of tap into that community archive. And that's been super important for this work because so I think some of the most moving of the pictures that we have and of the accounts are these that, that you know, people have shared with, with me and with my students um, and so, you know, we, we talked to people, we made sure that it was okay with the sort of survivor and descendant community. And then we also worked with the, the town of Grenada because they own the site. Um, and so again, we wanted to make sure that they were okay with us coming down and they have a little museum there in town. And because at the University of Denver, not only do we do archaeology, we have a museum studies um, part of our our track for our graduate students, uh, we have a master's program, was it was really wonderful because then I could draw on expertise of my own department to help out that little museum. And it was really our offering to, to help them manage their collections and do some interpretation that really helped to sort of open the door also to doing the archeology span at the site too. Right. So it's this really wonderful confluence of your needs fulfilling their needs, fulfilling also the needs of many of the descendants of survivors of Amachi to re research and, and know more fully their history and their family's history um, in this kind of gentle, proactive way. Yeah, I, that's so sweet that you put it that way, because I, I feel that that's sort of hopefully our approach is that... Um, you know, I, I'm fully aware that there are certain people who, you know, it was a traumatic experience and they don't yeah. ever, and they don't ever want to talk about it. And that is absolutely their right. Um, but mm -hmm. I also know and it's particularly true for um, many of my volunteer. And I was so lucky that first field season that a volunteer, a gentleman who had been a young boy in camp asked me. I met him when I was doing this community outreach and he asked me if, if he could come and work with us. And he's a professional photographer. And I was like, absolutely. We'd love to have you out there. And then he asked if he could bring his grandson, which I just was so touched. And so I really realized how important this story is and how having a, a place where we could in a safe space, explore this history together and, you know, mm -hmm. kind of uncover it a little bit and, and not just like the sort of the data that we find in the field, which is really important, but then also the stories that those bring up and the memories and um, and that it kind of those sort of spiral out from that engagement um, with the place. And so many of the, the volunteers, the survivor volunteers um, that I've worked with were, were, are the ones who are, were really little in camp and being part of the field school means that they can personally experience something that for many of them, their parents would not talk about, but, but is their, is their story. And so they can come and they can stand in their barrack and experience that and then look. And then we often like, we look to see, well, you know, did, was there a tree in front of your barrack? You know, what, what, how did your family landscape this place or did they, or, 
um, what's going, what was happening in your area or where your school was, that sort of seeing the ways that their families didn't give up, that they made things better, and that they just, they got about the, the business of living is very comforting to people. And it, it fleshes out a story that in, 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 I mean, I think I was struck by this when I attended your conference and heard some of these volunteer um, surviving um, now adults, but who were very young children. It fleshes out a story that in their mind could be much worse and makes it just more real. And it's still terrible, but it gives life to it in a way that's better than complete unknowing. All right, so let's move to gardens. You start your first field season in 2008. Tell us, you know, give us a sense of your organizing questions and walk us through some of the methodologies that you are using. Because I I think there is some fabulous irony in the fact that this particular location, um, its challenges uh, to being a good place to garden are in fact what have helped preserve the integrity of what is still there because there haven't been large developments and it's very hard to, uh, because it's so dry and windy, it's, you know, it's hard to keep things alive, but it also preserves really good specimens in place, I think. Yeah. So I just knowing that, so knowing that the, the environment would be a really good place for the preservation of botanical materials, um, mm-hmm. as well as uh, just the that sandy soil that everybody you know cursed when they were there, actually then gets blown in and sort of layers over in most of these places. And again, so it protects these living surfaces and these garden surfaces for us to be able to come back seventy years later. And so knowing that from the very beginning, I worked with. Uh, colleagues who were specialists. So a friend of mine who had done garden, um, specifically garden archaeology before, and he kind of, we worked together and I've just been so lucky. Um, his name is uh, Stephen Archer and he uh, he's like an archaeology plant nerd by, you know, <laughs> and so he really helped me think about how to best do this. And he's kindly come to, into the field with us that first season and ever since. And then he gets all of um, my botanical samples and I send them to him for research. So we knew we wanted to gather some soil and be able to uh, recover botanical remains from it. I knew I wanted to look for pollen uh, because pollen actually lasts long, even longer than botanical specimens. Mm-hmm. Um, so like, you know, seeds and, and leaf bits and, and wood um, are going to last a certain amount of time, again, especially in the high plains, but pollen is going to last a lot longer um, and is also going to be a, just a kind of different line for the kinds of plants that are going to just decay all the way away except for their pollen. There's also another microscopic um, plant remain called a phytolith, which uh, is literally plant glass, if you look at the, the Greek root to it. So it's... Um, so lots of plants have these kind of silica bodies that give the plant structure. And they and like pollen, their shape is specific to the family of plant that they come from. Wow. So I knew I needed to gather up those. And then when I was first doing field recon, I took a, um, a colleague of mine from 
are, um, are from our ecology department, um, Dr. Buck Sanford. And he, as we were going down there and trying to kind of figure out what I should do this, especially trying to figure out how are they taking their expertise and applying it in the high plains that, you know, these, these folks who were, you know, farmers and gardeners and um, landscapers and, you know, even poultry farmers who are, you know, they're raising plants and animals um, before they get there. Uh, how are they taking that knowledge and then trying to make it so that they can grow anything out there? And he was the one who said to me, you know, Bonnie, this soil is an artifact. And I want you to like, to treat it with that respect that you would if you were to find like a beautiful ceramic pot, like figure out how to get to it and, and analyze it. And so he helped me come up with um, a set of protocol for, for doing soil chemistry analysis. And then, um, and then he uh, uh, went to greener pastures and, and I was, uh, but I was able with his, um, uh, help to uh, connect to uh, Dr. Erica Marinspiota, who is at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, and her interest is specifically in human impacts to the soil. And she looked at wow. it. Yeah, and she does that all over the world. And so she came and for two field seasons, along with one of her graduate students and some of her, the people who work in her lab, she came out and we we tested the soil for the soil chemistry and we figured out how was the right way to sort of take what what ecologists do when they study soil and what archaeologists do when we study soil and try to come up with something that would work for for both of us um, to be mm -hmm, able to mm -hmm. do that. And that soil chemistry analysis has been, I think, one of the things that is has been so rich of this research and also maybe innovative because particularly for sort of relatively newer, um, you know, human impacted soils, things that were only happened, you know, 70 years ago, people don't tend not to do this kind of soil chemistry analysis. This is Cultivating Place. Bonnie Clark is a professor of anthropology at the University of Denver. Her new book, Finding Solace in the Soil, Archaeology of Gardens and Gardeners at Amachi, traces six field seasons of her research into the lives of Japanese Americans held at the Amachi prison camp on the high plains of Colorado from 1942 to 1945. We will be right back after a break for more from Bonnie. Stay with us. So thinking out loud, first of all, let me just say this. Yes, to be an archaeobotanist is a thing, a great thing for the near and far past. I don't know, maybe this is in my next chapter. Maybe it's in yours. And we're getting to this in the conversation, but I don't think it will detract from your listening from here for me to remind you, all of you, listeners, gardeners, garden lovers, and plant appreciators, our gardens are an expression of our human dignity. They hold our love, our pasts, our survival, our legacies. And there is no one way to express that dignity. 
As Rumi reminds us, there are 1,000 ways to kneel and kiss the ground, and there are 1,000 ways to go home again. Let's celebrate and take good care of every one of us, human and more than human, in this process. You know what I'm going to say now. Yep, together we grow better. Our flowers, our vegetables, our reintegrating habitat, our soils, and ourselves. We're back now to our conversation with Bonnie J. Clark, professor of anthropology at the University of Denver. Since 2008, Bonnie has worked in collaboration with survivors and descendants of Japanese Americans incarcerated during World War II to bring their histories to full life and light through the gardens cultivated by them. As we come back, Bonnie describes in detail the site, the gardens excavated there, and the lessons learned these last 15 years. Well, the first thing that really strikes you when you arrive, and again, this is partly about learning how to read the natural landscape so you can see the cultural landscape, was the trees. Mm -hmm. Is that Mm -hmm. there are all of these trees out there that don't belong on the high plains. And some of them are still alive. Some of them are standing, but, but no longer alive. And then some of them have blown over. And then like there are, especially there are certain blocks where, um, and I don't know if it was just the care that was taken with them when they were first planted, or maybe even the size of tree that people could afford. But there are some blocks that you can, they have a beautiful tree alignments and I've got photographs of them in the book. And so these living tree alignments that are still there, um, or then these others that are more like a kind of ghost tree gallery that we can see where those are. So one thing that's important of kind of, I've focused in on the information that we derive from doing excavations, um, but the, another really super important part of our work that I think people under, don't think of as much when they think of archeology span is that we do very intensive survey uh, so we we walk back and forth and back and forth across the surface of the site, and we document all the things that we find, and that's how we understand. Like we're that's how we know. Like well, in this block, we have dozens of gardens, and most of them are in front of people's house, people's barracks, but some are in public spaces. Some are next to the mess hall, so that when people are waiting in line, they would have had shade and something interesting to look at. And so that um, sort of close walking and documenting of those um, really helped us understand that we also had some other botanical remains. So we have this, a little stand of roses. <laughs> they haven't, the every summer, not mm. in a single summer we've been there, have those roses been, have they bloomed? But they're still there, they're alive. Um, they're spreading actually. <laughs> <laughs> it's clear because they're kind of moving up into the foundation, uh, which, you know, there's these concrete foundations. And so they kind of help hold the moisture. And we have a couple of, we've got some cactus gardens uh, that um, I think, you know, cactus kind of grows naturally there, but we have concentrations of cactus as well as cacti that have been dug up from outside and transplanted in that don't belong in that's like the, the sort of near region there. And so uh, just to clarify, when you do this walking survey, was this an initial survey that 
you are documenting what you can easily see without excavation yet. And that gives you a sense of where to start excavation. Am I getting that right? Yeah, absolutely. And I should point definitely point out that, you know, although the focus on this gardens has been sort of my own personal research, is I'm also, as we're doing this work, I'm overseeing uh, and, and enabling thesis research of my own students. And so they often have other things that they're looking at. Um, and so when we do that surface survey, we're looking at all of the sort of evidence of activity that's happening there. Um, with the gardens being one piece of that. Um, but yeah, so those surveys really help us think about, okay, where is there some, some sort of intriguing evidence from the surface that we think that if we were to open this up, it would be a really amazing garden. Um, and it might be that there's a, a garden wall that we can see a portion of it. Maybe it's one of these gardens that has a transplanted plants in it, um, or we've got a tree and a, you know, a evidence of a tree line um, so in other instances, we've actually chosen to do um, to excavate gardens because that were really driven by historical evidence. So where we had, um, you know, a photograph that was taken. Um, this is particularly true of the vegetable gardens. So those those victory gardens don't have a whole lot of, you know, hardscaping. They don't might not have garden walls. Um, and so those we've really primarily identified from, from photographs and then, you know, kind of recalibrated back to where they should be on the ground and then opened up um, excavation units. Um, or we had, you know, photographs that people shared with us of their family and their family gardens. And, and in some instances, we've, um, we've been able to do a little bit of research and have that, those um, inform our work um, as well. Uh, something else that we've done that's really important and, and goes back to, you know, sort of one of my reasons for wanting to do this work to begin with was to help sort of preserve as development moves forward. And so we've gone into areas where, um, so when we started in 2008, there were no, none of the um, very, very few, like two buildings remained. Okay. Um, and none of the other structures like the guard towers or the water tower. Mm -hmm. But since that time that we started, um, they've returned the water tower, they've rebuilt a guard tower, they've returned a barrack and a recreation hall. And before each of those things happened, we've gone in to do the archaeology to make sure that particularly the landscaping features would not be impacted, but other things, you know, just maybe, you know, individual um, artifacts or that would be that are on the site surface that we collect or document um, and just help to make sure that the, that as development happens, that it's happening in a way that will have the least impact on the physical remains. Over the course of these uh, six field seasons, you came to discover essentially hundreds and hundreds of gardens. And talk a little bit about this scope of the gardens represented there and and maybe describe some of them as well as like, what what does this then teach you? What do you take away from this rich scope? Well, I have to say, I just... I love these gardens. <laughs> I mean, as an anthropologist, as a gardener, as a human, they're yeah. just, they're fascinating. Well, first off, you know, there's just so many of them. 
And it really helps you think about how important this was to establish like to transforming basically this raw prison into someplace that was habitable into a town where you can raise your kids. Right. And they're just also, they're so ingenious. So they're taking industrial materials like, uh, like cinder block and carefully, carefully splitting it so that, and burying it in such a way that it looks like basalt. And they're taking pieces of concrete that are basically leftover, they're byproducts from the pouring of the concrete foundations for the barracks. And they're finding the ones that look the most interesting and turning them just so and placing them into the ground. Um, and sometimes in a way that they are almost like standing stones. Uh, there's, there's others where they've been angled and they're like, like one in one garden, it's basically, and I have to say, it just, it takes me a while, <laughs> I'm out there with it. And especially, you know, my students are out there, I, there's a lot going on and sort of like what this is actually garden is, sometimes it, it hits me on reflection. It was like a day after we left one field season when we excavated this garden that had this little tiny garden wall that had all these little kind of tilted pieces of concrete that then were very carefully, they'd been sort of braced in with a, in a limestone foundation. And I thought, it's a mountainscape. It's a, it's a miniaturized mountainscape. Yeah. <laughs> and like, it just finally struck me. Uh, we have um, another one that is, um, it's, it's very, it's a, it's a karasansui or a dry garden of the kind that you would expect, for example, at a, at a Buddhist temple or the, you know, if you've been to a botanic garden that has a Japanese garden, usually they're going to have one place that is, you know, basically the sort of the raked gravel with the stones. And we have one like that. <laughs> and that one is literally in the shadow of the reconstructed guard tower, which I, I love that it's like, you know, here's this oppressive thing. And then you just create this beautiful space in your own space. Some of them are just like crazy amalgams. There's one that I love that is like every single material you have in camp that's just lying around, they're using it to create this very eclectic garden that in, in, involved using broken water pipes as planters that they turned upside down and stuck in the garden. They're like, one of the pieces is just like a big outsized piece of coal <laughs> that they've incorporated into their garden design, um, brick. And, and that's the one where we, where we found the first like definitive evidence of sort of composting mm -hmm. because there was little crumbled bits of eggshell everywhere. Um, and uh, and both like in those little planters, which helped confirm that in fact, that's what those were, um, as well as just sort of the soil all around it. I love the way that they were so resourceful in materials and in seeing the beauty in things that were cast off, which I think that the, the way that that echoed their own experience could not have been lost on them, right? Right. That like here they were people whose country had turned their back on them and and didn't think they had value. And they're going out and seeing the value in other things that have been overlooked. Yeah. And there's a long tradition that I mean, that's a tradition in um, particularly sort of Buddhist inspired 
um, garden design. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it has a kind of deep roots. Uh, and, but it's, you know, to me, it's, they're, they're so inspiring. Um, and, and particularly also one of the things is, again, using the resources that you have at hand also meant using the botanical resources. So we do have evidence that comes from our, you know, studies of, um, you know, the transplanting of a lot of native plants into these gardens um, and using them, you know, uh, for ground cover or for, you know, just um, interest and uh, that these were, you know, plants that these folks would not have been familiar with before they got there, but they sort of, you know, they spent some time looking around and, um, and experimenting and, you know, bringing in some of these native plants into their gardens, as well as things that they were more familiar with, like um, canna, which is one of my favorite finds that we got from the pollen and the phytoliths, um, which is a form of tropical ginger, a tropical plant that's a, it's in the ginger family and it has no business growing. No business at all. Big strappy green leaves and very water loving and big fleshy tubers and big, crazy, beautiful, colorful flowers, you know, that spike up. Most people will be familiar with cannas, I think. Um, And then I would love to have you share a little bit about the jar of seeds and what that tells you. And then if you have the book with you, I'm going to ask you to read a passage after you describe this this jar of seeds and and what it what it illuminated for you, Bonnie. That first summer that we were out um, in the field, um, I work with a really amazing graduate students, and um, they were out doing a kind of some evening research on their own thesis work, and they came back to the field camp and held out to me a jar that they had a first very carefully mapped. So they knew exactly where it came from, <laughs> which is always important with archeological finds. And um, they handed it to me and it was a jar filled with squash seeds. And I was so thrilled. And um, when we looked on the, the so many uh, mass manufactured jars have what's called a maker's mark on the bottom. And that maker's mark helped us know that the jar had been made in Los Angeles and that it dated from before the war. And so it occurred to me, I mean, I'm often asked, how did people get the botanical, you know, how did they get the seeds and other materials that they grew in camp? And um, I, this one helps me understand that at least so that somebody in camp is saving seeds. Mm-hmm. Um, but because the jar predates camp, I suspect it came the way we found it, which was full of seeds. Yeah. That they had brought seeds with them. Yeah. Uh, and then you found another piece of evidence through a, a newspaper call for um, people looking for Asian vegetable seeds. Is that correct? So that, yeah, the newspaper, and this is interesting. So the, the newspaper is published a couple times a week and most of it is in English, but there's a back page that's in Japanese. And so this was the headline of one of those um, articles in the Japanese section that was asking 
for people who had yeah Asian um, uh, plants uh, seeds to to donate them. And so it again it suggests that they knew that particularly the older folks in camp, that first generation who were the Japanese speakers, probably did bring seeds right. for their preferred varieties of plants with them. Yeah. And, you know, you, you document the, you know, school gardens and as you say, vegetable gardens and seed saving and flower gardens and the agricultural fair and a a beautiful water garden, as well as the Zen gravel garden. And, you know, all, all of this goes to show just one, how ingenious people are, and two, how important gardens are in in all times, but maybe especially in times of great stress. I would love to have you read this passage about what you take away from the importance of telling these stories, um, maybe perhaps as best epitomized in this jar of seeds, Bonnie. The jar of seeds is a good example of how historical archaeology can contribute new insights into even well-known historical periods. It is among the many finds at Amachi that reveal strategies and networks of action, drawing us into a story that would otherwise go untold. That would be unfortunate because we need the lessons of the gardens and gardeners of Amachi. As the displacement of peoples explodes across the globe, we can turn to Amachi and its sister sites to understand how people under stress made effective places. There are lessons here for those who plan refugee and temporary worker camps or who want our prisons to be more humane. The remains at Amachi also speak to a broad public interest in history and civic justice. This place came about because of the dangerous combination, excuse me. The remains at Amachi also speak to a broad public interest in history and civic justice. This place came about because of the dangerous combination of racism and fear, yet it contains eloquent expressions of dignity. Is there anything you would like to add that we didn't get to? One of my jobs as an anthropologist is to study patterns of human behavior. And that was just the overwhelming, these gardens and all of the work that went into them. And especially the, like, one of the things that, again, was so striking was the results of the soil chemistry and how much people had invested into improving the soil in a place that they, they hadn't chosen to live. And um, what it really helped me kind of come to grips with was how these gardens were perhaps the, one of the most powerful ways that the people who were incarcerated at Amachi could, um, could take care of themselves and each other. And that um, these gardens were some of the best medicine that they would have um, could ever have turned to. And that remains true for every gardener everywhere throughout time, doesn't it? Absolutely. And I have to say that with, you know, the recent, um, everything going on in the last year was, you know, as I'm sort of, you know, putting the finishing touches on this book called Finding Solace in the Soil, I just, uh, like on a day, days when I couldn't, just deal. I just, I would just go outside. I'd be like, I know I've learned. (laughs) This is the place to be. Thank you very much for being a guest on the program today and for your 
many years of work bringing these expressions, eloquent expressions of dignity, to light and back to life, Bonnie. Well, thank you for helping me um, share the word about them. Professor Bonnie J. Clark is at the University of Denver. Her new book, Finding Solace in the Soil, Archaeology of Gardens and Gardeners at Amachi, traces six field seasons of her research and immersion into the gardening lives of Japanese Americans held at the Amachi prison camp on the high plains of Colorado from 1942 to 1945. Listen in next week when we return to the gardens and gardeners of underwestern skies in conversation with David Godshall, founder of Terramoto Landscape Architecture and Design in Los Angeles. It's a great summer listen. Join us. Cultivating Place is a co-production of North State Public Radio. For much more on the gardens and gardeners of Amachi, including many, many images, head over to this week's show notes, which you will find at cultivatingplace.com under the podcast tab. While you're there, make sure you're subscribed to the podcast so you hear each week's full interview and just so you never miss an episode. Cultivating Place is made possible by the generosity of listeners just like you at CultivatingPlace.com and by support from the American Horticultural Society celebrating 100 years of learning and growing. Our producer and engineer is Matt Fiddler. Our development director is Sarah Bohannon. We are based on the traditional and present homelands of the Machupta Indian tribe of the Chico Rancheria. Original theme music is by Ma Muse, accompanied by Joe Craven and Sam Bevan. Cultivating Place is distributed nationally by PRX, Public Radio Exchange. Until next week, enjoy the cultivation of your place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. Thank you.